I'm still trying to stab you, for sure. Like I don't want to be no paper cut. That's still that's still very real. Like I'm trying to make sure that if you do open this gift, that it's going to have some type of meaning in your life. Now, how big that stab wound is, that depends on the reader. It's man, it's weird, right? Like you know when something hits you. And that's what I love about words is because it's not like a car accident where your airbag explodes and you just bust in your face. Like, it's almost like your heart drops, you know? It's just like, oh shit. You know, like I'm always working toward that oh shit moment. From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gore, and as always, I am joined by Brandon Hill. Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, Brandon Hill, writer, editor with Central Source. You should subscribe to my writing newsletter. I've been doing little blog updates on our podcast and other stuff. Uh, you can find it in my bio at Hoopla Hill on Twitter. Yep, and by Mickey Hellerback. What's up, guys? It's Mickey Hellerback. Um, I'm a writer for Central Sauce as well. Uh, I just wanted to give a big shout out to my friend Trey Young, aka Donnie Durag, for his Rolling Stone placement, and also tell you all to look out for our Why We Like or my Why We Like It piece on his new song and video, No Laughing. Awesome, man. I don't have anything to promote. I'm just excited to get into this now. Okay. So this is the first of a kind of bonus series we're doing for the podcast, which is interviews with journalists. You know, the, cons- the whole premise of the podcast revolves around great writers, so we figured we'd get someone on the show to basically get inside the inner workings of the journalists that we admire so much. And today we are blessed with the presence of a very special guest, uh, one of the most recognisable writers in music journalism. This man's pen and his voice cut through the crowd like no other. From these astonishingly perceptive one-listen reviews to these long-form op-eds that blend poetic phrasing with transformative ideas, our guest's work epitomises everything we love about writing. So, I'd like to welcome to the show, Yo Phillips. Man, that was beautiful. <laughs> that was such a nice intro. Uh, thank you, man. I'm trying to you, live up to those. Thank you guys uh, for having me, for real. Yeah, thanks so, for coming on. Thanks for coming on. Definitely. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. So with that intro, I was trying to live up to those uh, runaway jukebox <laughs> intros. I, 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 oh, that's I throwback, can never man. Dude, I used to love that podcast. It was a fun time. Was uh, I used to go hang out with Jay a lot, and he really made me see the future of podcasting and the yeah. way you can gather the right people the right voices and to pick topics that really connect with people. I think it's very much like forming a rap group. Like a great podcast <laughs> is like building your own Wu-Tang. Mm, and uh, sure. I think you guys have succeeded in that as well. Wow, that's amazing. Man. We should all put our names into Wu-Tang name generators and start going by those <laughs> for our bylines then. I'm not that against that. I'm not against, I mean, back, <laughs> back when I used to do the AKAs at the end of every essay, it was kind of inspired by uh, multiple names and just kind of always having a new characteristic to touch a story. You know, I feel like when you work on a story, you kind of enter a different kind of period in your life. So, you know, you got to have a name for that period. That's amazing, man. First gem dropped four minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
So, um, for those who somehow don't know about Yo, he is a senior writer, senior writer at DJ Booth, and um, he's a published author, The Book of Yo, and he's got a podcast, something to say. He's pretty much doing everything imaginable out here <laughs> to a very high, high level. Uh, so, yeah, man. So... Should we jump right in then, Mickey? I think you want to start. Yeah, I think that's a good transition, Ryan. Um, just because uh, I, I think I'm going to have to start out by pulling a, a, a bit of a nardwar by throwing your, your own uh-huh. words back at you. Um, oh, fun. <laughs> straight from Book of Yo. Um, just want to read you a quote um, just to start off with uh, where we're going to go with this. Um, so in Book of Yo, you say, Atlanta raised me. The city had more impact on my musical taste than either of my parents. I saw the rise of crunk and death of snap. I saw dope boys turn superstars and outcast years after the declaration that the South had something to say, which is particularly poignant today. And I'm literally just realizing this right now um, (laughs) because it is, correct me if I'm wrong, yo, I'm sure you know, it's the 20 year anniversary. I believe so. Yeah, of um, Andre 3000 saying that at the Source Source Awards. Um, So I think that's a great thing to bring up. So the the first question is, what's your favorite thing about Atlanta and the music that's been birthed in it? So I was born in Grady Hospital in Atlanta. I was raised like right outside the city, pretty much like 30 minutes south. And I think something about being raised like right outside of Atlanta, it gives you the perspective of someone who looks directly at it, but not be in it. And I like I've always loved my viewpoint of the city. I've always loved that the city always called you. If you were a youth growing up just right outside of Atlanta or in Atlanta, you had to go into the city for basketball games, for see family, no matter what. Something about the city called you. And I think that what I've always loved about it is when that call is is made and when you go into the city growing up, there's something that like grabs you. It keeps your attention. It holds you like in the bosom of the city. There's always something. There's always somewhere to go, someone to see, something to do. And there's a flavor to it. Like there's a certain kind of flavor to Atlanta. And I always think that that's why the rappers here are always so colorful vibrant stylistic it's because the city itself kind of molds you that way it kind of creates a a character in you to stand out in your own way because there's just something about this place that that breeds individualism you know it kind of makes you who you are because like that's why i said like you look at your parents but i always feel like atlanta makes you really look at yourself it really makes you ask who you are and like, what do you want to bring to this very interesting place? Huh? How That's, how th- far how far outside Atlanta would you say that that reach goes? You think that that's expanded as you've gotten older, as compared to what it was when you were a kid? Well, I get a chance to see how Atlanta as a city influences like other cities and other states. You know, like how FX Atlanta as a show. I see when people come here now that they want to go to Edgewood. Or they want to go to, you know, the wing spots or the magic city. Like, they're coming here with these expectations because of what they've heard or what they've seen or what they've been accustomed to through social media. So there's a certain level of influence that has spread beyond just living in a 30-minute radius. Like, it's global. Huh. I, I'm interested in, in what you said about the specific flavor of Atlanta. Just diving it more into that, what... What, what do you think that is? 
that breeds such um, individual artists? If I had to say, I think because there's a there's an interesting yearning to stand out here. Like we have our wallflowers, you know, people who like to just play the back. But like the reason why everyone's a rapper from Atlanta is because everyone thinks they're a star. Like I don't know how many places I go where everyone believes they can be the center of attention. You know, I didn't go to a school where everyone was a class clown, but I knew everyone had something to say. Everyone had a personality, you know, they didn't necessarily want to be like anyone else. You want to be the person who other people wanted to be like. And I, I don't know what it is about this place that does that. Again, it's just like you watch people enough and you realize that everyone kind of has this something. And, and that's why it's kind of interesting that Andre said the South has something to say is because I, I noticed that in people. Like, man, like, all, all of my friends are individuals. Like, they're not really like each other. And they, the ones that grew up here are so specific to the city. And uh, down the street from me, where I grew up at, uh, one of my best friends, he's from New York. He's always tried to hold on to his New Yorkness. But he's so Georgia. He's just <laughs> like, you're not from New York. And, like, he's like, just trying to hold on to that piece of himself. But I think here in Atlanta you you kind of like don't hold on to a piece of yourself like you actually try to share that piece of yourself you always try to find the best way to represent yourself in the way that you dress the cars that you drive like even the diamonds the grills the even the girls that you date everything is a part of showing the kind of person that you are it's very big on who you are here and individuality Mm-hmm. Yeah, in- yeah, individuality, what you stand for. I, I think that's such an interesting dichotomy. So I've lived in, in Brooklyn the last five years, but I feel like Brooklyn or New York in general and, in, and L.A. are places where you go to stand out. And uh, that's like the difference between from what you're describing, uh, from being from Atlanta, you you kind of grow up with this essence of being an individual from youth rather than this is the place I'm going to go to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know too many people who left Atlanta to go to New York to make it. Like, right. I, I didn't I didn't see that growing up. I saw a lot of people come here trying to make it. You know, they wanted to come to, you know, Black Hollywood. They wanted to come to this Mecca and, and experience what it gives the people that live here already. But I, I don't know too many people where we were just plotting going L.A. Like, we're going to move over there and we're going to build our what. Like, that didn't happen. It was all about how do you make it here. And I think that also kind of creates this craving in you to stand out. Because if you know everyone's here is trying to make it and you got something, like you you can't be quiet about what makes you a giant. Like you have to sometimes step on somebody to show them that you're big. So how do you think growing up in Atlanta has influenced your music taste? Well, I have a very interesting upbringing because my parents, uh, they own a skating rink. But even before they own a skating rink, they spent some time managing a skating rink. So I feel like I spent my formative lit years at roller rinks where the DJs always played hip hop music. And there was used to be like this big crate when I was like seven, eight, maybe nine that had nothing but clean music. You can grab any CD that you want. It was just going to be clean. And I remember the first one that I ever pulled out and really grabbed my attention was uh, AT Aliens. It was the cover. Something about that cover grabbed me immediately. 
And I used to go to that crate and just like have just having access to music like that. I think it was a blessing, like just growing up and then going to a rink and kind of seeing that in a skating rink, the music that's played isn't always the most popular, but it's based on like the BPMs. It's based on rhythms. It's based on music that makes people move. So you're watching music that has the intention of creating a reaction. People create routines to this music. People uh, like live to these songs. So I think I've always been interested in sequencing for that very reason. Like if you look at the one list and reviews, like I pay close attention to sequencing because I know how music creates reactions. So I think my uh, my like initial interaction with music is what creates a reaction, what makes somebody move. And then my personal taste really kind of formed when I was interested in writers. You know, I always said like, like Lupe was my Walt Whitman. You know, because he was just like that kind of a writer. And then, you know, it's funny. I found Lupe because I traded my my friend from down the street. I traded him a DJ Unk CD. Like beating down the block. I traded beating down the block for food and liquor. And I came up. I came up with that trade. He got the short end of the stick with that one. And I I love that Unk CD. That Unk CD is great. But it is not food and liquor. And he never got his CD back. Just want to say that he never got it back. But yeah, like I think discovering Lupe really put into my mind that I was interested in storytellers. So I started yeah. to have a, a hunger for rappers who were great with words. And, you know. So you uh you got into the CD hustling game pretty early. We heard that you used to burn and sell CDs at your high school for $3 a pop, right? Man, I was just talking to my dad about that. He was like, I used to send y'all to school just selling things. I was like, yeah. Like, we were we was just a hustling family. Like, my brother used to make Airburst t-shirts. Like, he used to just, like, like people would bring stencils, and he would spray them. I had CDs, um, and people used to bring me lists, like, of whatever songs they heard on the radio, they would write down. And they would bring it to me. And some song that they didn't know the title, they would just write the hook all the way out. So I would have to look up the hook to the song before I could even know the title. It was a very ridiculous period in my life, but it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) It was a great time. I kind of miss it. What kind of stuff were they looking for back then? Like, what were they listening to to get you to burn on those CDs? The hot, whatever was hot. Whatever the hottest song that was out. But every now and then you would find... You would always know who had the old soul based on if they wanted like the slow jams, like the quiet storm records. But like, you know, all the girls wanted the pretty Rickies, the Plies, the like anything like R&B-esque. And then all the guys want the hardcore rap records, the T.I.s, the Jeezy's, the Gucci's. I made so many Gucci CDs, man. And so many Jeezy right. CDs, like Can't Ban the Snowman, oh, yeah. like all the mixtapes, all the gangster girls. Or some people would just come to me and be like, what's hot? Like, burn the hottest songs that you can find. And, you know, a lot of Lil Wayne. Um, you know, a lot of Destiny's Child, too, uh, on the women's side of things. Like, Beyonce, Kelly Rowland, like, uh, Mariah Carey. It, it varied so much, but it really kind of showed me the way radio influenced taste. Because you could really only want what you heard. There's no yearning if you don't know it exists. So that's why the radio was so important because it presented in front of people that this is something you can seek out. And I was just the guy at school who you could come to and get that in your pocket. Hmm. It's kind of interesting you're talking about like the sounds people consume in Atlanta and kind of what the city, how that's a reflection of the way the city feels, I guess. Because mm-hmm. like being 
like living here in England and kind of experiencing American hip hop, uh, like every rapper talks about where they're from, but whenever a rapper from Atlanta specifically talked about Atlanta, it felt different. And especially when it comes to people like Outkast, mm-hmm. like I don't know if it's my personal connection, the way I just gravitated toward that music, but the way they spoke about where they're from, they're eclectic anyway, but the way they spoke about Atlanta, it made it seem so, like there's this deep ancient mysticism in every rock that comprises the like uh, pathways and shit. Like <laughs> that's the way like I maybe that's how I process things and the way um, that music made me feel. But I wanted to know like how well represented is the way you talk about the flavor of Atlanta. How well represented? How well re- represented is that in the music that comes out of Atlanta? Does it do it justice? I'm fifty-fifty on it because on one side you do get a certain character of uh, dope boys and Cadillacs and strip clubs and hot wings. Like that's a very clear representation of a very real period of Atlanta history, and not just a period, but like very ongoing. Like. It's not a game. When you see Donald Glover talk about Robin season, you really do notice that around a certain time period of the end of the year, people's shit is getting knocked in. Like, I remember very clearly when my cousin, he had got these gold rims on his car that he was super proud of. And his dad was like, why'd you get those rims? And he was like, because I wanted them. And I had stayed the night at my cousin's house and he used to stay in Stone Mountain. And I just remember, I don't know why I vividly remember this, but like someone came and sold the rims from the car and like pit him on cinder blocks. So the car was like jacked up in the air with no tires the next morning. Just hold, they took the whole thing. They took all the tires just for the rims, you know? So you see something like that and you, you remember like, wow, like that's, that's what they mean by like Robin season. Like stuff like that really happens out here. But then there's another side of thing where it's very artistic. It's very, uh, it's very chill. You got like so many different kinds of people here. I, feel, I always feel like Atlanta is where you can go be any kind of black person. I went to school with, I went to a public school and I went to a public school where I feel like every person there kind of represented like a, a spectrum of identity. So you, you know, you had like the nerdy gangsters, you had the, the gangster nerds, you had the very smart intellectual fashion Ford folks, you had like every kind of person. So sometimes I feel like there's a spectrum of Atlanta that gets like held to the highest degree on a commercial level, but some other spectrums of it don't really get seen. You know, for example, Donald Glover, who also grew up in Stone Mountain, I feel like he didn't get the representation of being from Atlanta. Like he kept yelling it like, I'm from Atlanta, I'm from Atlanta. But if you look at him and you listen to him, you don't really get the same Atlanta that you get when you listen to T.I., when you listen to Future, and when you listen to even a Gunner or a Little Key. Like the spectrums of Atlanta is so diverse that there's a lot of Gambinos. You'll come down here and meet a lot of, a lot of Childish Gambino type artists you'll meet a lot of futures you'll meet a lot of different guys so i think the hard part is is like you can't you just can't pit a whole, you can't there's no one representation of what atlanta is it's just a melting pot of flavor so you can come down here and you hit a certain corner you can go to the east side you go to the west side the south side the north side and you're going to get a different kind of flavor but it's very hard to frame that underneath one umbrella so i think that's the hard part like it's very hard to make one thing from a city yeah. like this 
Yeah, I, I think um, that that's totally clear. But it also does seem like um, in Atlanta, your individuality is also inherently tied to whatever your hustle is, too, though. Yeah, facts. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Like whatever your hustle is, is like you got to kind of represent that with your person. And uh, I do believe because Atlanta as, as, a, as a source of commercial success, it does kind of make people lean a certain kind of way. Like, if your hustle is radio, you might sound like a certain artist because you're hustling for radio. And you might sacrifice some of your more individualistic talents trying to be Thug, because Thug is on the radio. And that's one thing about Atlanta. It's kind of like there's a tunnel vision here. If you want something, you're going to chase that thing. And you, you're going to sacrifice whatever you have to to get to that thing. It's a hustling city. So sometimes I don't know even if I recognize the things that I give up trying to get closer to what I want to accomplish. So would you say that, you know, selling the CDs and being into with the roller rink early on, that your hustle early on was kind of tied to music and that that kind of pushed you in that direction like early on? I never thought about being a journalist or a music journalist. I just wanted to make money. Like, that was a CD thing. And, like, I had access to a computer. I had access to a CD burner. I had an interest in music. And I also saw that other people had the same interest. And I always felt like I tend to find a way of doing things that, to me, is easy. And I'm always like, why are other people doing this? Like, it's not hard. I'm not doing anything difficult. I'm just burning CDs. But there's someone (laughs) that was going to pay me $3 for it. So why not make a buck? That was always kind of like my intention in school. I was kind of bored by school. I just was like, well, if I got to come out of here and get a job, I might as well get a head start. So when did you start to think that being involved with music could actually be a career option and more than just a pastime? Like when did you start writing, really? Uh, when I graduated from high school, my aunt, she had a website called The Silver Tongue, which was a rock blog and I don't know where she was finding rock music in Atlanta, because I never found it. But she <laughs> somehow had, like, she was on the pulse of rock music in Atlanta at one point in time. But she also had the foresight to know that rap was going to be very popular on, like, online, that there was going to be, like, a blog boom. And she asked me if I wanted to do music reviews. And I was like, no. And <laughs> I, th- I thought about it a little more. <laughs> Cause I was just, it was just, it was a summer of just being bored. I didn't have a car. Uh, I was coming out of high school. I was just trying to find something to do. And she was just like, come on, just write, just like write. And I was like, fine. And I think my first review was like Nicki Minaj, Pink Friday. And uh, it was terrible by the way, it was very bad. But, but I started to enjoy it. But really what really got me into wanting to be a writer is I wanted to write an op-ed. I don't even know what an op-ed was, but I knew I wanted to write a think piece on the subject of like West Coast rap and like this new era of West Coast rappers coming up that I was really interested in. And she let me write it. And uh, I think breaking the form of an album review to write something looser and to translate like all these thoughts I had on this music, on these group of people, like it really kind of triggered something. Like a light bulb went off and I was, cause it was easy. I was like, oh, that was easy. Maybe I can do that again. 
So I, I did that for a while, just like starting to translate thoughts into complete sentences, into vibrant pieces. Uh, I remember reading F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise, and I was like, why does no one write about rap the way he wrote about the jazz age? Like, Fitzgerald's language was so colorful and vibrant and poetic. I was like, yo, I'm gonna write like Fitzgerald. Because no one's doing that. That's what I thought. So I was really trying to translate that. Um, it got me nowhere. But I, I ended up getting a job a couple years. once starting at a gas station. I lasted a month there. It was terrible. Uh, I ended up quitting. And uh, I remember I sat outside waiting for my ride. And I was like, I'm going to be a music writer. And I figured that if I can just be the best music writer, I would make the most money. I never looked up like how much a music writer makes. I never thought about like, <laughs> like what, is the, what, the, what the industry looks like. I never thought about publishing. I was just like, just be the best writer. You'll make the most money. That's horrible advice, by the way. It is not true. <laughs> you will not make the most money, no matter how good mm -hmm. you are. Just a disclaimer, kids. But uh, so after I quit my job, I was unemployed for two more years. That was fun. And uh, during that time of unemployment, I just kept writing and I kept writing. And then I got another job at Olive Garden. And uh, that was horrible, too. And <laughs> writing during that period is when I met Nathan Slavic, who ran Refine Hype, which was the brother site to DJ Booth. And meeting Nathan changed my life. Word. I... I uh... I just think it's funny just going back just slightly to the the idea that your your individuality and who you are is tied to your hustle that as soon as you kind of found the thing that you were going to love to do you still had to convince yourself that it was part of your hustle to continue doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Look, yeah. man, that's a that's a ladder though. Like if you yeah. have a hustle here then what right. are you doing? Yeah. So funny. <laughs> just to be a writer well well you know i i'm gonna make the most money doing it so of course i have to pursue this <laughs> yo right like that that level of confidence is insane you should yeah. not have that because like, like i said it, like i said it gives you tunnel vision you don't think about nothing else yeah but like being the best at it mm. in turn you're just waiting for the money to come fun fact it never comes right <laughs> like it, it never gets there man i'm telling you right so that was a helpful lie, is what you're saying? Oh, yeah. I lie to myself all the time. You got to sometimes. Sometimes yeah. you have to really convince yourself to get out the bed to make it happen. Because right. if you told yourself the truth, why would you leave the bed? Right. right. I wouldn't leave the bed if I told myself the truth every day. Right. So when did you feel like you were a respected voice in music? And did that realization have any effect on your relationship with music? Uh, man, that's a good question. I try not to think about that. Um, <laughs> honestly, uh, mm -hmm. being a respected voice is a thing that I knew would eventually happen, hopefully. But I, I couldn't really gauge it. Like, I, wouldn't, I wasn't sure how it was going to happen. It's kind of like puberty, right? Like, you know puberty is going to hit. Sometimes you have a growth spurt. Sometimes your voice drops. Like, something happens to signify change. But when you're a music writer, I wasn't really sure what that would be. I thought it was going to be money. But then when that didn't really come, I wasn't really sure how to gauge respect. I knew people like things. But then I think you start to realize people are trusting you to tell the truth. 
And then I think once you have that relationship with your audience, that's all you worry about, telling the truth. Mm. Um, I heard you say you like art more than people. What is the inherent quality about art that is more appealing than people? Ideas are amazing. Ideas are probably the most fascinating thing that a person can offer the world because you know how they say nothing new is under the sun, but you're new. Like you did not exist before you existed. So that means you're carrying around something that might provide a newness to this world that's old. The world is old, you're new. So I think ideas, especially creative ideas that turn into art, like even detached from a person, that idea can inspire you. So that's why I love ideas because I feel like if I find the most ideas that inspire me, then I can make something new. I don't necessarily need a lot of people to get an idea. I just need a lot of art. I need access to art. The more art I have access to, the more ideas I can make. So give me all the I, art. I can physically see Ryan getting inspired over there. <laughs> Dude, I'm just sitting there taking it. That, yeah, that was a gym. Yeah. That's good. So part of, you know, it takes time, obviously, like to consume all of that art and to really focus on you know, refining your own craft. And something I've definitely personally noticed is how difficult that it is to find that time and to like make yourself that available when you're also having to work, you know, like a full-time job or work a job that's going to pay your bills. And, you know, you clearly, while you were working this job at Olive Garden that, you know, nobody enjoys these kind of jobs. And then you still somehow manage to find the energy in your off time to really like consume that art and channel it into something that's as great as what your writing has become. So how did you kind of balance all of that storm of work and inspiration and writing and just consuming art without, you know, going a little crazy? First off, I almost quit so many times, like so many times because Olive Garden, because of the gas station, because of all the pressures of trying to get to where you're going to that destination it weighs on you significantly. It's a very difficult thing to do. I don't want anyone to ever think this is easy. This is so hard to do. And a lot of that is because psychologically, you're trying to create something that does not exist for yourself. You're trying to get from point A to point Z, and you can't see that far ahead. So when you're spinning, all, I used to sit at Olive Garden all day and just stare at the door. And I just knew if I can walk out that door, I would never come back. But every day I end up coming back. Every day. I used to tell people I'm going to quit all the time. Like, I'm going to quit. I'm, I used to just go to work and sell. I don't know why they kept me on. I was so negative. <laughs> but, but, like, I couldn't. I refused to accept that that was my job. It was a pit stop. I kept telling myself that this is not a job. It's a pit stop. It's a pit stop. It's a pit stop. So I would always say I'm going to quit. So even when I said I quit, they didn't really believe me because I had spent so much time. saying They didn't even replace me. Like, they didn't. Like, after the two weeks was up, they were like, so you're not coming back? I was like, I quit. <laughs> I had said it so many times that they just didn't believe me no more. And it was fun. Like, I, I enjoyed how little, how, how they didn't really take me seriously. And, and then when they did kind of soak in that I was quitting, they were like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm going to write about music. And they were like, okay, well, if you ever need your job back. <laughs> so, uh, and then I, I got to say, you got to have a good support system. I, I really thank my parents because uh, they, they provided the roof. The roof is probably the most important thing for a writer. You need a roof. 
you don't have a roof, it's going to be very difficult to maintain the writing. So I always tell all the writers that I know, like, figure out the best way to maintain your roof and then figure out how you're going to maintain your art. Those are the two things you must maintain if you're going to be a writer. You got to maintain your roof and your art because if you can't, you're, you're, you're going, like, you got to avoid desperation as much as possible. And, like, when you hit peers of desperation, like I have, so many peers of desperation, you just got to be hungry. You got to go for it. You have to go for it. You got to believe that, like, this period of desperation is going to be a short period and the prosperation is going to be the long period. You just have to reach that point Z. And, again, I think a lot of the times that get people to quit is that they wear themselves down mentally. Like, if you don't believe you can make it, then you're not going to make it. Because literally, like, tomorrow isn't promised, but it's like the promised land. Because that tomorrow, you can get that, that phone call, you can get that email, like, everything can change tomorrow. Especially if you're working for it. If you're working for it, the work is always going to get seen, it's going to get showed, but, like, you got to get to a level where that work is paying itself off. If, you're not pay- if the work's not paying itself off, you got to work harder. And that's not, like, pull your bootstraps up, but, like, really, like, the work is the only way you get better. It's the only way you improve. It's the only way you sharpen your steel. So, like, your mentality has to be a workhorse. Like, that's why I love Little Baby. Little Baby just be working. Like, I play so much Little Baby because he reminds me of what it sounds like to be hungry, to try to defy all the eyes. Like, the album My Turn, like, the title, he's calling it My Turn. No one said Little Baby was next. No one was like, oh, yeah, he's about to be the next guy. Like, no, he called it. And you got to have that energy. You got to call your shots. And if you're the next one, you better say you're the next one and work like it. We actually just talked about the uh, Lil Baby's cover story in Rolling Stone on the last episode of the podcast. It's great. And I, and I thought how, you know, how well Holmes gave the impression that Lil Baby was, it was inevitable that he was going to be at the top because that was his, you know, that was always where he was going to be because of how he worked that hustle and he was going to earn that spot. So I think it's really interesting you say that, especially in the context of how we had just talked about that. I find it really interesting that rappers in Atlanta, like a big thing they do is play dice. Like rolling dice to me, that that's that gamble is very much like trying to write a hit record. Like you're rolling the dice every time you step into the booth. And like you want you want to hit. Everyone in Atlanta wants to hit. Like and they gamble big and then they go record a song to keep that money coming in. So, like, I see, that's what I loved about that story. Like, you can tell that, man, that's a gambling man. And you, if you're a gambling man, you can make it in rap because you got to risk it all. Right. So can you talk about that that moment where it flipped for you from um, not being sure if you're going to quit to kind of gambling it all? And also tied to that is do you believe in some version of fate? I'll say it's, got, it's kind of funny. So... When, when DJ Booth decided to hire me, we went like a two-week trial period. Then after the trial period, it was my first day. And on my first day, my lung collapsed spontaneously for like no reason. Like my lung just collapsed. So I had to go to the hospital. So it was kind of weird telling my new bosses that like I need time off. Because <laughs> I was like in the hospital. They had to put like a hole, like a tube in my chest. Cause they had to pump out like the air bubbles. It was a weird thing, man. Like it was spontaneous lung combustion. Like it, it never happened to me before, and it never happened again before. It to follow my first day, like working. So like I'm sitting here thinking, like, oh yeah, this is the first day of the rest of my life. But 
it wasn't. <laughs> like, so, but I think something about that period was very important because I was still at Olive Garden. Um, and when I got back to work, they were like, your lung combusted? I was like, yeah, but I'm getting ready to quit this job too. So it's just like, I got a lot going on. So it's just like, so you're going to write about music. You, you barely got a lung. Like, well, what's up with you, bro? <laughs> and uh, they made me close on my last day at Olive Garden. And it was New Year's Eve. So I was pissed because I was yeah, ready to like, get those hours. Yeah, man, I was, I was ready to start my new life. And they made me close to, you know, a spot like Olive Garden. You have to wait until everyone leaves to lock the door. You cannot lock the door until everyone leaves. So, man, I can't remember how many people it was, but if you get there before we close, like, I got to let you in. Like, I have to. So I think, like, a party of five came in, like, at 11 o'clock, and they stayed for, like, 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes. So it was very close to midnight when I, like, locked the door. And I just really remember literal fireworks. Like, I'm locking the door, and I see fireworks, and I was like, I'm going to be okay. Like, that's a sign. And that's kind of also, like, why I believe in faith is, like, sometimes, like, timing for me always lines up. Like, I'm always right on time. Even when I'm late, I'm always on time because it's, like, the blessings always come on time. Like, even how I was just telling somebody how I got my first piece on DJ Booth was it was written for Refined Hype. I just sent it to Nathan the day before Refined Hype and DJ Booth merged. So... I'm right. I, I did. I wasn't even thinking I was gonna be on DJ Booth. Nathan tells me, "Oh, you're gonna be on DJ Booth," and I was like, "Why?" He's like, "The sites are merging." I was like, "What?" And at this point in time, it went like a, maybe like a two month span where I didn't send Nathan anything. Like I was kind of like in a funk. I was just tired. I was tired of writing. I was tired of work. I was just like, I was waiting for it to happen, and it wasn't happening. But I had came home one day because I had got the itch. You know the itch, like when that story comes to you and it just flows off your fingers. Like, it was easy to write. Sent it to Nathan. Next thing you know, that, that piece is on the booth. It's my first piece. It does really well. And it's just kind of like, that was the moment everything started happening. And it's just because of, I had the itch and I had the time. The timing was perfect. I couldn't have lined it up better for me. And I always feel that way. Like, even without seeing those fireworks, like, that day would be different if I would have let me go home early. If I didn't see those fireworks, if it was been sunny outside, it would just been another day. But like literally seeing the sky full of color, walking to your car knowing you'll never go back. I finally walked out that door. I knew I was going to be okay. I had to be. There's no way I wasn't. So every great writer also needs to be an avid reader. And you shared a bit of your reading habits before. So give us an update on you know, what you're reading now and what you're hoping to get into soon. I read everything. I like literally have <laughs> oh. a problem. I have a problem, man. Like, it's a good problem to have, though. If if I interview somebody, like I just interviewed Raekwon like maybe two weeks ago, and Raekwon mentioned like The Godfather and how that was an influence to him. So me being me, man, I have to go find everything I can about The Godfather. Like, I got to find about the screenwriter. I got to find out about the director. I got to read their interviews. I got to know everything about how that movie was made just to write this interview about Raekwon. They have nothing to do with each other. But I have to kind of fill my brain with all that context. And that's kind of like my reading habits now is precise 
selection. Like, what am I looking for? What am I hungry for? What do I need to, to find? Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Like, I can wake up and, and be interested in, like... Uh, like, I was interested in Buddha, man, and I found, like, a manga about Buddha, so I spent, like, a week just reading this manga about Buddha, and I don't even know why. Like, it was for nothing. I was just interested. Like, I have a, a very huge curiosity for things, and I find that writing is the best representation of whatever idea you're looking for. Like, I can watch a movie or a documentary. Those things still leave out details, the beauty of writing is the amount of details you can find in a book, in a comic, in a short like in a short novel, in a you know like an anthology. There's so much information that you can just find in writing. So it really just depends a lot what I'm hungry for. Like I'm just a very 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 curious person. And you said that. Well, I think it's really interesting too that you you found a manga on Buddha. Um, and you said that you're very precise about, you know, what you're looking for when you read. So how do you know when you found it? That's a light bulb. I can't tell you how. It's just like, it's this very satisfying, like, I did it again. It's like, I feel like I would have been a great pirate if I was just out <laughs> here searching for gold. And, you know, like when your shovel hits the chest and it makes that ding sound. That's how mm. I feel when I find it. It's like a ding. And I just always know because I know when to stop searching. I know exactly where, like, okay, that's enough. Move on to the next thing. It's very obsessive, but I always know when to stop. It's just, like, something very satisfying about realizing you found that thing you were looking for. So one of those dings for you, uh, you've already mentioned, was the 1920 novel This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes, sir. Um, and you've mentioned that this one particularly inspired you to be a writer. So how, you know, what about that book was so particularly inspiring? Inspiring. I was in Barnes and Nobles. I was just walking around. And uh, they had it on sale for like $8. And then I remember Fitzgerald writing Gatsby. And uh, the title is what really got me, This Side of Paradise. And I was just like, well, what is on that side of paradise? And I remember picking it up and reading about Maury Blaine. And just how Fitzgerald really, like, he just wrote the hell out of that book, in my opinion. Like, it's not a perfect first novel, but you can just tell he's hungry. Like, there's something about hung, hungry writers that I'm always impressed by. And, like, just getting the backstory that he had this, this woman he wanted to marry. He was living at home with his parents. He was uh, determined to be a writer. He knew exactly what he wanted. He could not get it. He had to manifest the life he, he envisioned for himself, and he said he was going to do it through writing. And I just kind of felt very uh, kindred to that desire. And, uh, man, I don't, want to, I don't want to mess this up. I believe the, the ending of that book, he says that I don't know anything but myself. That is all. Something about just knowing self, and that's it. And I remember getting to the end of the book and reading that and feeling very fulfilled with that answer. Like, if I don't remember anything else about this book, it is that this character realized, after all of these trials, that all he knew was himself. And I think that that's always what I've been searching for. It's like, who am I? I'm a writer. That is all. Hmm. So, 
you once said that uh, reading the works of dead writers kind of helped you differentiate yourself from like your contemporaries, I guess. Mm-hmm. And as what you just said, like developing your own voice. So is that the main reason behind that? Just making sure that, like, yeah. Well, I want to know about the connection. That connection between like the only reading the dead writers and like developing your own voice, like as a philosophy. Oh, uh, interesting, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't really read any contemporary books or contemporary authors too often. Very rarely. Like, if you look at my bookshelf, it's, it's dead people. Like, they're all pretty dead. And uh, I can't tell you where it started from, but it definitely was when I got into Fitzgerald. And I think the next really big influence that I was, like, very much in love with was Charles Bukowski. And I always found that Bukowski's writing was so... Man, it was it just felt raw. He had this raw pen. He could have been a rapper. And um, reading him and just reading about how he wrote about other writers, I was like, he hated his contemporaries. Like he was just rude about other writers. And I and I used to think like, Man, why was Buck so mean? But I think he was always trying to show separation. Like like I said, sometimes you have to step on someone to show people that you're a giant. I don't necessarily believe in that, but I do see how it works. And for me, I, I, you stand on the shoulders of giants when you read dead people. Like, I don't necessarily try to stand on the shoulders of the living because they're still growing. I want all my contemporaries to grow into full giants. I don't want to copy anyone. I don't want to get ideas from anybody. Like, I read the people who like I just really rock with and I want to support. But I really don't read contemporaries for inspiration. It's just like, man, look at the library, man. This is so many dead people who have already done this, have already had their levels of success. Their stories have already been told. Why do I not draw from the people who have been here? Why do I spend so much time looking at who's doing it too? Like, I want them to go far. I want them to go so far that the libraries are filled with their books next. But I can't, wow, yeah. I can't read them searching for the answers to my next piece. I'm never going to really find it. The only really time I, I, I read contemporaries and I'm searching for a story is if, I, if I'm quoting or if I'm, if I'm piecing together something. But I, I very rarely read my contemporaries in search of inspiration. Like, nah, there's been too many writers who didn't die for this that I can just, I can grab, I can pick up, I can read and, and, and feel like that nourishment of what they went through what they what they wrote and what they seen. Plus, I like old language. I like old words. I like things. I just like old shit, man. I like records. I like vinyl players. I like cassettes. Like I, I'm a old so film photography. Like I like old shit anyway. So it's just a it's just a habit. It's a habit of mine. It's funny because like I wouldn't say I have, I have the opposite philosophy, but I have some. I'm more lean towards contemporary because I like to see how things evolve like I'm very like I love seeing the evolution of things like I'm massive into sci-fi and I'll like like I like reading the Arthur C. Clarks and everyone like that but I love seeing how modern writers have taken that and kind of propelled it to somewhere else and that kind of blows my mind so do you think there's something to be said in both like fiction literature and journalism for kind of 
um, learning from how like how much have you learned from contemporaries? Would you say? I think say? I, I do believe it's important to have awareness of your contemporaries, or oh, and just like contemporary space. Like I kind of feel like I have a very good grasp of who my peers are and who writing I really respect and who's like really doing it and kind of having an understanding of the kind of stories they write of the, the language they use because it, it allows me to remind myself what period that I'm in. Again, if you spend all your time reading old writers, you can kind of forget that it's 2020. Like there's certain things <laughs> that you can't do because like that's dated. Like I never want to be dated. I never want to be old. I, I kind of always want to be as current as possible. And I think having contemporaries just, just prove that you are current. You need to always try to remain as current as possible no matter what your medium is because there are people who's documenting history. Like you don't get into history books being old. You get into history books being on time, being new, being fresh, being innovative. But it's, it's, it's something to be said about having a tribe. It's something to be said about having uh, a community. You know, you don't necessarily have to make writing a void. But I do believe it's just like you need to know the way you operate so that you don't like step on anyone else's toes. Again, I want everyone to have their lane. I want everyone to run their race. So you just have to create your own boundaries, I believe, and allow those boundaries to just let you be your individual self so that when history does write about your period, they can write about you and all the writers who were like you or who were amongst you, but they're not going to write about you all as if you were the same person. That's one thing I just always wanted to avoid. I never want to be the same. I just want everyone to be different. So you're, you know, you're a super conscious reader and, you know, it's clear that like when you read things that they really stick with you. Um, like the fact that you can pull out that one thing about uh, this side of paradise that really stuck with you. So, you know, when you're reading another writer, you know, when that shovel has hit the treasure chest, mm-hmm. but how, but how do you know when you're reading your own work or writing your own work, when you've hit that treasure chest yourself in your own writing? Good question. I try not to think about it. I try not to think about it. Usually for me, once I have the headline and the first sentence, then I have satisfied the writer in me. It's like, oh, you can do this again. Every time I do that, it's like, oh, you haven't forgotten. It's like riding a bike. But after that first sentence, it's just... It's, 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 it's like, how can I put it? It's working out. It's going in the gym. I used to tell a friend of mine, I would tell her, I'm, I'm in the gym during COVID. So I'm coming in to every story with warm-ups on. I take a couple jump shots. I'm running drills. But it's like, I'm not worried about hitting a game winner. I don't know why. It's, it's, it's interesting because I never feel the pressure that the game is being played anymore. Like I'm just running drills. And that's kind of like a more relaxed version of writing now. Like I used to have an immense amount of pressure on myself in my early days. Like I thought everything was for the game. Every piece was the game winner. Like everyone, they threw me the rock. I have to pit the shot up. But now I'm not necessarily worried about wanting the game. I just want to perfect my drills. So like just getting the fundamentals down, having fun, like writing sentences that just make me like laugh. 
sometimes, you know, when you got that good one where you're just like, I could stop right now. Like, why am I still writing? Like, that was great. You know, like you have those moments and then you kind of just keep going and you hope by the time you get to the end. That's also the cool part about having editors. You send it to your editors and you wait for their reaction. That's one of my favorite things. It's like I send it to Donna and I'm just waiting for her to tell me like, yo, this works. Yo, this doesn't work. And uh, but usually just her reaction to certain pieces of the piece, it just tells me like, okay, that landed. Okay, that was a good one. That was a good shot. That was a great layup. That was a good dunk. Like every sentence to me is a play. Like I try to make sure everything is structured in a way where it's like very cohesive. I try to make my articles very fluid. I want them to flow from like the first word to the last word because I want people to finish the piece. I never want no one to stop reading the story. So like my goal is to keep you enthralled. And that's kind of like while my writing is a little colorful, while it's a little purple, because I need you to find like these little punchlines, to find these little like poetic moments that like keep you engaged. So even though I'm in the gym, I'm very aware that someone is watching. And like, I just want to make sure that every shot looks good. You know, the way, the way you described that at the beginning there with like the analogy to the gym um, reminds me of almost exactly something me and Ryan were talking about yesterday. So like all three of us, we write these why we like it pieces that are just like these short song reviews on songs that have been like submitted to Central Sauce that we like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other day we talked about how every time that we write one and we finish it, we're like, damn, like that was really good. Like that was so much easier than I thought it was going to be going into. And I, for whatever reason, I just kept putting it off that I didn't want to write it. But then when I sat down and I wrote it, it was so much easier than I thought it was going to be. So then we tell ourselves <laughs> that the next time we sit down to write, we're, you know, we're not going to put it off. We know it was easy last time and we know that we got a good result out of it. So why do you think, you know, sometimes that there's that like apprehension to, to start writing? Cuss is work. Like <laughs> writing is work. <laughs> what? I never want to write. What? It takes me forever to just decide, all right, this is it. You're going to do it again. Like, again, working out, who wants to go to the gym? I don't. I don't like going to the gym. I don't want to do it. But when I go, you're always like, well, that wasn't that bad. But the next day, you're still going to be like, oh, the gym. Got to do that again. Like, no one's, it's not a candy store. And that's my thing about writing. Writing is not a candy store. It is fulfilling. It can be fun. It can give you all the rushes of the world. But the moment you have to look at a blank page, a naked white page, you don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. But like (laughs) the thing about it is it's when you actually do it and it's easy. That's what gets you coming back to it. I think I've always loved the Drake line when when I stop having fun with it, I'm done with it. And I really thought that was a remarkable thing to say on your third album. Because it shows how even at his level right there, rap was still fun. Like he still enjoyed it. He enjoyed the process and the practice of it. But he also started to realize that there might be a point where this is not enjoyable anymore. And I kind of think that's the work aspect because it is still a job. You can follow your dream and your dream is probably still going to be a job. No matter what. Do you think... Do you think that's kind of the point that Logic has got to? 
that's the impression that I get, that exact impression from his new album, actually. I agree. I will say that Logic had a dream. He fulfilled his dream. But he also realized that the dream came with a lot that was a part of that work. Like To work as a rapper comes with a lot. It comes with an audience. It comes with fans. It comes with touring. It comes with a very specific lifestyle. There's a writer lifestyle, too, that you also have to accept once you decide to be a writer and once you hit a certain threshold. You got to accept what this lifestyle has in store for you. And it's not always fun. And it's not always enjoyable. And some people do quit when they realize, like, it's not fun anymore. That's funny. It reminds me of a conversation that uh, Milo and Open Mike Eagle had, like, on his podcast ages ago. And he talked about how in how rappers always brag about things. But the way Mark, Open Mike Eagle would brag, he would, like, have the brag and then the cost of it. And I think that's such an accurate representation of... I guess, just being a creative. Mm-hmm. Like, he has that song, Qualifiers, isn't he? It's like, we're the best, kind of, like, mostly, you know? <laughs> so it's like, um, it's kind of what you're talking about. Like, it's so fun to write. It's so rewarding to write sometimes. But you have to acknowledge that cost because it comes so often. It's, and, go on. It's a big cost. It's actually, yeah. uh, I call it a debt. I always tell myself, pay your debts. But the debt mm. of being a writer, it's a huge debt. You might spend the rest of your life paying that debt. And when you start, you think you can pay that debt every day without, a, without question. Like, oh, it's nothing. Like, it's like when you have those uh, auto pay on your account and you're not even worried about them being taken out. Because it's like, oh, $9. But like, what if you only have $8? Now you're in overdraft. And I kind of feel like that's how it is to be a writer, is that the more the debt that you pay, you always think you can pay it. But what about the day that you can't? I think those are the days where it's kind of tough. Hmm. So I feel like the most exhilarating, for me anyway, the most exhilarating part of like making a piece is the initial idea and that confidence you have when you first have the idea and you just want to jump in and write. <laughs> So I want to talk about how that confidence kind of changes as you go from uh, pitching to writing to publication. How does that change? I think I have a very interesting relationship with the space because DJ Booth has always kind of allowed me the grace of picking my targets. Sometimes they offer me subjects or, you know, hey, would you like to talk to this artist or would you like to do this? But mostly... I get a chance to pick what I want to write about. And I think having that grace, it it allows that discovery process, like the the light bulb moment, to have to be consistent. Because I think I had a pretty consistent output for most of my tenure at DJ Booth, and I always had to have an idea. So I know this year specifically, I started having to look at new sources to pull ideas from. Like I had to get new books. I had to find new writers. I had to find new movies. I had to find new friends too. Like I had to change who I even talk to sometimes to just keep the light bulb going off. And um, I will say that it is still such a rewarding part of it. Like sometimes you'll be uh, meditating and the answer will come to you and you're like, yes. Like I'm just glad I can do another one. 
you know, like as long as they keep coming, and I, I, I consider it coming from like, I say the source. Like, if you are the source of your good ideas, if you're the source of your great ideas, then you have to always believe that there another one will come. I think I have unlimited amounts of good ideas, so it's just about like finding the idea, processing the idea, gathering all the pieces you need for the idea, and then writing. So, mm. I had a specific question, but I kind of forgot it. So, <laughs> I think Mickey wanted to ask something. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I wanted to, you, you touched on um, your process of editing, specifically with Donna DJ Booth before. Um, and I was, I was wondering, um, what's your favorite thing that your editors help you with? And what are your, your what you view as your own bad habits that they help you correct. Cause at least that's been the case for sure for me, for Fire. everyone who's helped edit my question. work. Yeah. Uh, I'll say the thing I probably need the most help with is like cutting fat. Sometimes I can be a little wordy. I have a, I have a great love for getting as much information into pieces as possible because I don't know. I have a thing with omitting. I think omitting is very close to lying. So I never want to lie. I want to make sure that I get my complete truths across. But sometimes the editor comes in and just lets you know, yo, you didn't need this. You didn't need that. Take that out. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, I think younger yo was a little bit more frustrated by the cutting of his truth. But now I'm just <laughs> like, yo, cut it all out. Like, it can go. It's fine. If you don't think it needs to be there, it can go. Um, and I would say, like, my favorite part of the editing process is just like the conversations like the talking about the work is still very fun to me like discussing pieces and discussing the 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 sentence structures and the ideas or even like when they love something like getting you know the editor's note on a piece because you know you just you hit a home run it's just it's still fulfilling in a sense that these people that you've been working with for so long that they that you can still pull off something that impresses them that you can still pull out something they deem like worthy of the highest possible praise on this platform. So, you know, it's, it's, it's still, it's like a coach, man. Like you want to hit the game winner and look your coach in the face and, and, and know that's why you throw me the ball. Cool. Yeah. So you kind of, you want to get, it sounds like you want to get editors that you specifically want to impress. Yeah. I would tell all writers, get editors you want to impress. I wouldn't work with no one I wouldn't want to impress. Same thing, I don't work with people I don't respect. Yeah, like, no kidding. I want to, because I want you to see in this work that it is worth your time. Editing is like, its its own process too. So I never want to waste anyone's time. Like, this is worth your time. I'm worth your time. So that's that's that tends to be my mentality about certain things is don't waste anyone's time and make sure that once you get that chance to get some work in front of that editor, make sure you try to impress them the best you can. So what what kind of qualities do you see in a good editor? Someone who understands the work. I don't want you to just read the work, but I need you to comprehend the work. I need you to comprehend like why things are done the way that they are because all writers have their own voice. So I think as the editor, you're trying to pull out the best pieces of the piece and the writer. You want this writer to stand out. You want this writer's work 
to 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 live as a singular piece. So that when people look at this piece, they look of a, at a writer directly because it's so unique to this person. It's in their voice, it's in their style, and it's you know situated in a way. Obviously, like grammar and corrections and stuff like that is always necessary. But I always think of the stuff like that like secondary, like grammatical errors. Like I think we all make mistakes, but like, do you have your voice in the piece? Like, have you been able to create some type of individualism? where from the moment people read that first sentence, they know it's you versus anyone else. Like, I really try. I think the highest compliment someone can pay you is like, I knew it was yours before I read your name on the byline. Like, that's the highest compliment someone can pay because it's like your voice comes to that clear. Yeah, we've, so we've, we've talked a lot about, and I think you were talking about it right there inherently, what things are kind of um, fulfilling for you about your op-ed styles of... Uh, journalism but there are two other uh, main styles that I've noticed specifically that you've um, do, uh, dove into which is uh, interviews specifically and you have kind of different styles of interviews for how you do them and the one listen reviews so I was wondering if those have similar fulfillments for you or if they're different I look at interviews interviews are interesting uh, I look at a good interview like a ping pong match like, you ever watch a good ping pong match of people going back and forth hitting the ball, and it, it looks almost seamless? Yeah. I feel like a good interview is when you're talking to a subject and the answers and questions are going back and forth seamlessly. So, like, when you have that kind of flow, you can do a lot with a good transcript. But that's why, I like, with interviews, it, who's the subject? What time of the day did you call them? Were they open to answering things? It's, it's so much that has to go into an interview that sometimes they scare me before I do them because, like, I don't get a chance to decide the outcome of this. This is a partnership, and I need you to care about it as much as I care about it. But you never really know. You never really know if you're going to get a great subject. You can pull a poor conversation into a great interview, but you're working with whatever they give you. So from that perspective, sometimes I do try and play with the form of interview. Like with this Raekwon interview, I knew I didn't want it to be like a traditional interview. I wanted to do a little bit more writing. So it's going to be like profile style, but I don't know. Like I'm tr I want to try something. and I don't really know exactly what it is, but like I have this thing in mind that I'm going to try to pull off and we'll see if I pull it off or not. But when I get a transcript, I look at it and I'm just like, okay, how am I going to tell this story? Like how am I going to tell this person's story? That's always the first question. How am I going to tell this story? And then if it's Q&A, then all right, cool. This is going to work as a Q&A. If it's a profile, no matter what it is. I'm also trying to do this other thing, too, lately. Is like if I get a really good quote, like, okay, maybe I can pull that quote out and build an op-ed around that quote and not put it into the interview. Because sometimes I think, like, why don't we, journalists get so much information. Like, why don't we just take some of that information and put it in other pieces? Like, I don't need... 17 new ideas like if Raekwon gave me three fresh ideas like if I can take this Raekwon interview and flip it into three pieces why am I not like flipping that sample so that's another thing that I'm seeing because like there's a quote that he gave me that I love but I was like man maybe it won't fit into the interview but maybe it'll fit into an op-ed and I can still use it you know I'm just trying to to have a healthy relationship with making sure that I maximize all the original content that I get because you know when you write so much the well can run dry, but it's just like, nah, there's still water in there. And as far as the one listen reviews, uh, that's actually, Nathan created that review style. 
before he left DJ Booth. And when he left, I, I kind of adopted it and, and made it my own in a, in a cool little way. I like it. It's exhausting. It's very tiresome. Like, I don't, I don't want people to think, like, I'm just be over here having the time of my life. It is tiresome. Like, you get 20 records, and you just got to sit down at your computer and not move and not stop it. It is not fun. But it, it exercises a particular part of my brain where it's like, I can hear a record. I can hear one record one time and, like, have a, a better grasp of it now because of one listen reviews than probably before. Like, I can just kind of get to how I feel about a record so much quicker because for years I've been reviewing songs from first gut reactions. So I, it's, it's been an interesting practice that I think I would like to see more writers try it. It's, it's, a, it's an exercise, but it, it really does work your brain in a very particular way, and it's kind of cool. Word. So you're ta- you've talked a, a bunch about this this Raekwon interview, which I'm sure all, all three uh, of us are very hyped to hyped to uh to read i um i think that kind of transitions really well into this next question which is about uh the different styles of interview well the different types of artists you can interview which is either um kind of a newer artist or someone you're kind of breaking or a vet um do you have like a different tactic for interviewing um different types of artists in different stages of their career and is there one that you like better than the other it's still trying to understand what's the story, but sometimes as a storyteller, I get a chance to kind of see it. You know, it's funny, uh, Kenny Mason. Kenny Mason is from Atlanta, and I met Kenny like two years ago. And you can, you can ask Kenny this. This is actually kind of funny. I had sat down with him, and I told him, I'm not going to interview you until five years from now. Because I feel like you would have a so much better story in five years. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep up with that. Because he's doing a lot of great things. And I might want to talk to him before <laughs> then. But it's like sometimes it's like you got to kind of visualize the story. And I just know. Because like, I recorded that whole conversation. I was with him for an hour and I recorded it. So like I want to be able to look back on it. And kind of see in five years what that conversation looked like. You know. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do that because... I believe in like archiving conversations because I do believe like looking back on things, you see differently in the past tense. When you reach a new present, you can look back on something, you can see it differently. So that's my thing when it comes to interviews. Like I'm always looking for in the transcript, okay, what works in the present? But what is something that I might be able to look back on in a couple of years and it's going to still grab me? That's the thing. I like, I always try to write things that's going to have some type of relevancy in two years, three years, four years, five years. You know, you look ahead a little bit. Hmm. That's kind of leads into what I want to ask about what, um, how much does the, like outside reaction to your pieces kind of gauge what you write about? Like if something's super successful, a kind of style is super successful, um, does that kind of encourage you to write about that more write that way more or is it kind of the opposite where you want to like throw people off I guess it's actually interesting the um the death piece that you guys covered um Mm. I always thought that was like one of my highs Uh, that piece was just like really good so sometimes I would read it and be like can you do that again 
And I'll be like, well, I don't want to get into another car accident. So I have to assume that I can't. Like, I, I usually look back at my old work and assume that I can't do it again. Like, it's very odd. But because I, I, I think I tend to draw from like where I am in my life. So if I'm not in that place no more, it's very hard to do that again. So I don't really look at the success of things like a, uh, as a benchmark of what I want to do again. I'm just happy it worked. So right. sometimes I look back on things. And I just to kind of remember why it worked, but I don't know, man. I think it's something very fun about the thrill of thinking you might not do it again. Again, like when you sit down and you're like, I don't know how to do this. And then you pull it off. And those moments to me, you always get you an original piece, no matter what, no matter what the reaction is. If you sit down and you have that apprehension of like, how do I write? Whatever you write next is going to be fire. And I, I try to put myself in that position of kind of being like, like this Raycon interview, it was supposed to have been done, but I just sort of kind of like dragged it out a little bit because I knew I hadn't figured it out yet, like in my head. And I sat down to start writing it today. I'm like four, four paragraphs in and I'm liking how it's shaping up. And I just know that like, if I was trying to copy a formula or a format I wouldn't be doing this, how it looks, how it feels, how it, how, how it flows. is so unique to its own self. That's why like, I think every story is literally a story. So I need to respect the story and tell what it needs me to tell. Mm. That feeling of sitting down and thinking, can I do that again? Or can I <laughs> replicate that? Is one of the scariest things I have. Like, that's one that really terrifies me. And I guess, and you, you mentioned that piece you wrote about death. And yeah, we covered that a few episodes ago. We all had our own like mini existential crisis. crisis <laughs> club. On the show that is so funny about... looking back on that. Like, what was, what was I going through? Like, <laughs> I don't know if you heard it, yo, but I, I responded particularly to that. I, I think the strip club is very similar. I don't know if you heard this in the thing. I think there's something about the strip club that feels like purgatory. Where it's yeah, like... no, it was absolutely <laughs> correct. I wanted to quote you on it on Twitter. But I was like, yo, he's right. It's, it's no lights. You can't tell what time it is. You can't see the sunlight. Yeah. Like, you can literally live in there and right. not know what day it is. Right. And it's like, it's a sense of pleasure. Because, like, man, I've been to the strip club so much. And, like, you see how nice the strippers are to you if you have money. Yeah. Like, if you just have money, that means everyone's nice to you. So not only do you not know what time it is, everyone is treating you pleasantly. So you don't really want to leave. But the more money you spend, the more you're going to regret that later. I've never woke up from the strip club and be like, I'm glad I spent all that money. Yeah. Like, there's no way. It's no, right. I'm not at that point in my life where I could just be like, that was a, that was a good night well spent. Right. Like, no, it's just like, how, like, you know how many articles I threw last night? That's how I think about it. Like, how many... How yeah. many pieces did brain from that ceiling last night? Too many. Right. So right. it's a bit well, it's of like a purgatory. A it's like a test, like purgatory. Like how, how much am I going to allow myself to give away? And don't hang out with rappers and go to the strip club. Because <laughs> you, you're already the brokest one in the group, but you don't right. want to feel like it. Like, the, <laughs> man, I went to the strip club once with Deontay Hitchcock, Guap Dad, hey. Childish Major. And, like, I knew I was broke. Like, 
But they, like the way rappers spend money and the way journalists spend money is different. <laughs> different. Like they got Spotify streams. We don't. <laughs> so, so don't don't forget when you're hanging out with your rapper friends that y'all don't make the same amount. Mm-hmm. It's the cost, man. It's the cost. It is the cost. That's why I like the strip club, though. The strip club is where you get your mind right. Because there's no way you leave there without thinking about the cost of something, the cost of pleasure, the cost of fun. Like, it's going to charge you. I think, like, I like places that make you pay. Yeah. It's funny how something, like, everyone else around you having fun can trigger, like, the exact opposite in you like that. Yeah, I I don't know what I was going through. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I, I, do. I remember that piece so vividly because I, re- I, I, I know that day so well. I remember who the friend's cousin was. I remember that section. I remember the girl and the, everything about that day. But I don't know why I spaced out like that. And then I, don't, I, couldn't, I couldn't have planned that car accident that night. For all that to happen in one night, it's just like, what? Like, I, but like my life is crazy like that. Like it's, it's always a bundle of very strange circumstances that's why like i feel like writing is my medium of choice because like, i get a chance to document some of the weirder parts of my life or some of the weirder things that i see like even like the revenge of the dreamers like going to that and experiencing that like i don't think anything else has changed my perspective on artists like seven days with dreamville in that studio like like living that like being able to live in that and then walk away from it like you you take something away when you can enter these spaces when creativity is flowing like that and you just have so many people man i remember one night they just had like music being played everywhere like people were just setting up microphones and laptops and playing beats and rapping and it was just like deontay hitchcock was everywhere the way that guy moved around that studio even though he has one placement i know he rapped for like seven days straight just like it was it was literally like this this camp and everyone was going for it and i'm kind of mad i didn't get not one credit on that album they want a grammy (laughs) seven days no grammy nom i I completely wasted my time (laughs) i'm joking it was it was it was just a great to see to experience and so like those and those things like i couldn't i could not have planned that like for them to do it in atlanta for, for right. the people to reach out the way they reached out, for me to be able to just even arrive the way that I did. Like, it's crazy. Like, I really wish I could document exactly how that whole thing played out because it is, it's not what people think. It's definitely not what people think. Like, I didn't like get invited because they wanted a journalist. Like, it was not that. It was not that at all. It was, it was definitely on some, like, that's the homie. Like, let them come, and it's cause I'm always hanging out in studio sessions. Like I go to the studio. I used to go to the studio so much. I used to just like hang out in the studio. Like some of my best friends work at studios, so I was just a regular studio rat. I I've never recorded raps before, but like going to the studio was definitely just something I enjoyed. So I think when you're around like that, you become accustomed to being around artists. Like they're not, they don't find it weird when you're around. Like, people didn't act no differently. They didn't treat me like, yo, the journalist. Except for Cole. Cole's the one person who treats me like a journalist, which I like. J. Cole never <laughs> forgets I'm a journalist. And I appreciate mm. that because, like, 
the journalist, like in, in, in like a almost famous sense, is like you do document everything. And I think with, with an artist of cold stature, you probably feel like I, I might not want everything covered. So I can respect that. But when you're coming up in Atlanta with people like Earth Gang, people like Jid, people like Deontay Hitchcock, and they see you regularly, then they don't treat you no different. And I do believe there's always got to be a separation between art and critic. But like, man, you got to kind of get closer to the door to see the magic so you know what you're talking about. And and that's one thing I think I'm very grateful for is that people open the doors for me to see the magic so that when I write about it, not just write about them, but just write in general, like I have a really good perspective on how this thing is made, how people live their lives, and 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 I can get closer to the truth right you it seems like you um something that a lot of rappers since the beginning of rap have talked about is the necessity for competition within hip-hop but it it seems like the way you're describing those sessions that they kind of created a new type of um competition that feels a little bit more modern and different which is sort of like a communal competition that at the same time you're kind of going at other people for placements, but you're kind of building each other up simultaneously. Is that something mm-hmm. you feel like you witnessed? Absolutely. Do you, think, do you think that that's like, um, do you think that's useful for kind of moving forward with the art form? Yeah, we need competition, but we don't need it to be like, I think I've been reading a lot about Greek mythology, right? And obviously in, in Greek mythology, it was all about the action. Like, you want to take somebody out, you take them out. But I think in rap, sometimes that level of aggression kind of crosses over into the competition. Like, you want to squash your competitor. But, you know, like, like career-ending things. Like, back-to-back, Drake was like, you know, I can finish Meek. Like, I can finish him. And, like, we saw, like, the sales drop. We saw how people reacted to Meek in, like, a, such a negative way. Like, rap can be competitive on a I-can-end-your-career level. But then there's another side of competition where it's like, do you want to play with the best team? You know, do you want to compete with the best players? Like, how do you get better if you do not put yourself in the position to best the best? And that's what I kind of saw in those sessions was you see someone write a verse, you want to write a verse. You see someone lay down something hot, you want to lay down something hotter, you know? And it wasn't like a grudge match. It was just like, there's no way I'm going to lose. It's very personal uh, satisfaction in knowing like someone can push you to hit a new level. And I, and I believe that a lot of the people from those sessions still communicate with one another and still strive to keep that communal competition. You know, you want to see your brother do well. You want to see your brother hit new levels so that you can hit new levels. You know, I try to encourage all of my friends to like hit new levels. Always hit new levels because as long as you are running your race again, like run your race, but it's it's okay to look at the runner next to you. All right, like I I got to might pick up the pace. I might need to 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 try something new. It might be time for me to change my style up. You know, it's, it's okay to be aware of your competitors, but you don't have to step on them. So with all that competition, you know, in the room and all that just like flurry of activity and all those super high energy guys in there did you sort of feel more like a fly on the wall or you know what was your role in kind of everything that was going on like how did you feel being in the presence of like all of that going on and how did you handle that 
as a journalist, but also like, how did you handle that? As like you said, um, you know, a guy who's close with some of these guys that was invited there as a friend. I'm not, I'm not new to the studio. Again, like I got friends who like run studios, so I might just pop in and just hang out and just hear tunes. So I'm kind of used to just hanging out and hearing tunes. Uh, going there for an extensive amount of time was really interesting because it allowed me to live in it a little bit more. And Tree Sounds, the studio that um, they were at, it's so big. It's a huge studio. And I got close with some of the guys that ran the studio, like Kyle. And, you know, I would just always find someone to talk to. Like, I might chop it up with Eve. I might chop it up with Derek. I might hang out with my guy, Ja. I might hang out with, I might see Boss in the corner. I might pull up on Boss. I might see, like, Luke, talk to Luke for a little bit. Like, I was really just kind of being social, trying to stay out the way, but also, like, soaking in a little bit of the mentality. I kept asking questions. And that's kind of my thing. It's like when you're curious, ask questions because someone's going to give you an answer. Like me and Deontay talked a lot. Uh, spoke with Mez for a little bit. Uh, when Zay was there, I remember seeing Zay. Uh, Kyle Banks, man. Kyle Banks is a homie now. Like me and Kyle are super cool. He uh, We met there. Monte Booker, I met there. Uh, Elton, Elton um, Smino's engineer is actually like a really good friend of mine now. And we got really cool during that time period. So that was the thing. It was just like being able to have uh, the social connections and then for people to kind of see you, to kind of get a chance to speak with you and kind of recognize like, oh, okay, this is the kind of journalist you are when you're not just behind the computer. You know, I think it's very important. Like I don't take pictures, but I have no problem showing people who I am. You know, I have no problem uh, shaking your hand and having a conversation. You know, I can be critical and I can be honest, but I try not to ever be mean because I know people have feelings. And I also want to be able to always look you in your eye and be like, I was just telling my truth. I don't, I don't want to ever make someone feel like I attacked them, especially like when you can be seen and people can touch you, man. You just can't be out here talking crazy. And that's, <laughs> and that's a reminder to me is like, you got to remember these people are real people. You just can't sit here and play with their lives because you can. Like, that's not how this is supposed to be done. So you've seen kind of firsthand like the energy and work ethic that a lot of artists, musicians and rappers like really put into music. And how do you think that that compares to your work ethic as a journalist? You know, how how do you think that the two both in music, but two very different art forms? How do you think that the like the work level compares? I think journalism moves at the pace of the music. I think that's why it seems that we have so much music commentary because there's so much music. So uh, me personally, I, I was a big fan of Little Wayne growing up. I thought Wayne was like the best rapper. And Wayne's work ethic was crazy. I always thought Wayne's work ethic was the work ethic of a workhorse. So when I started writing, I always kind of wanted to emulate the Little Wayne dropping mixtape perspective versus building out a big album I was like I'm gonna keep dropping these pieces until something hits and I kind of took a lot of that mentality over the DJ booth after five years I'm kind of tired so like I try to take longer times on pieces and make sure that I, I make them full like now I'm thinking I'm working on album pieces versus working on mixtape pieces 
And that's the thing. You just sort of kind of have to decide what is this piece? Is this an EP? Is this a mixtape? Is it the album? And then, like, yeah, I think if you treat it like that kind of mode of thinking, then you understand the work you need to put in. You, need, you understand the kind of context you need for this thing to be full or for this thing to deliver what it needs. Because sometimes, like, a one-listen review might just be a mixtape. Like, it's, it's not a critical piece. It's, like, it's analytical. Like, I'm going to analyze this thing so I know it needs to be fast. But sometimes I can do an op-ed like that. Like, I might catch an idea of, like, oh, this is a fast one. This is a mixtape. But also, if I got something that's broader, it's like, oh, this is an album. You got to treat it like an album. So, yeah, I, like, I, think, I think like a rapper. I like to think that I think like a rapper. And I think like a rapper because I spend so much time listening to them. Uh, and I study them. So a lot of the practice that I put into my writing really stems from the things that I see in hip-hop. Hmm. It's funny because you have a lot of artists that take massive breaks. Yeah. Like Kendrick's, you take those breaks. But you don't seem like you take any breaks. But, like, listening to what you said before about your writing process, it seems kind of... Like, you make it sound kind of slow, but every time, every couple of days, I open up Twitter and, like... DJ Booth accounts tweeting about this new Joe piece that's <laughs> fantastic and and like and let's go in depth and crazy like so how do you how do you like what is that about like is it really slow or do big ideas kind of take a while as you chip away at these smaller pieces? I realize that if you're a slow writer but you never stop writing, then you always have something new. Like I just I just don't stop writing. Like, I think I have a very consistent output because, like, my mind doesn't really stop thinking about pieces. Like, that's probably the thing. Like, I, I haven't had a vacation. Like, I never had extended time off. Like, I've never had a Frank Ocean period where I'm not writing. I've never had a... Uh, I've never went two weeks without writing a piece. Like, ever. Like, I don't take breaks. Jeez. So every piece leads into the next piece. And that's also something I always find to kind of be like exhausting. It's like always having to have an idea. But it's kind of like how you guys talk about when you finally sit down to write and it comes out easy. Like by the time you get the next idea, you're not thinking of stopping. You're just like, all right, now I'm going to just keep going. Now I'm going to keep going. Now I'm going to keep going. And uh, I think that's what has always kind of helped my output. Even at times where I've kind of slowed down, I never stopped never stopped writing five years never stopped so you just never you, you you never run out of catalog you never run out of a new single you never run out of a new ep a new album it's like if i was a rapper uh it's probably like what i would consider like jay-z's run from like reasonable doubt to black album but that was like an album every year but that's kind of like how i felt about my output like maybe an article two hour articles a week three articles a week but doing that from 2015 to 2020, you just kind of like, you build up your own, I guess, I don't know, stamina. You just have your own stamina to kind of keep that output going. But I don't know. I think I'm going to pull back maybe. I don't know. I think about it. I flirt with the idea of slowing down. But it, it always feels like it's like a gambler. Like, all right, I'm going to take off a blackjack. Like, why would you stop playing blackjack? You know, you every time you play, you might win. Every time you roll that dice, you might win. Why would you stop? Hmm. So that's how I feel. Like, it's it's my gamble. It's, it's my dice. It's funny to compare what you just said to 
what you wrote five years ago in the uh, death piece. Yeah. So I'm 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 gonna read the quote right now. He said, "If I die, I'm a. I wish I could answer that question. I've been in love with the idea of immortality since I started writing. That I would pen something that would outlive my limitations. Lately, I feel like I'm writing too much. That the pieces are paper cuts and not stab wounds." I want to lunge these words into your heart so that my sentences are repeated and regurgitated, passed down like sacred scriptures. First of all, bars, man. Look, you can tell he wanted to be rich. He was trying. <laughs> he was trying to be the best writer. <laughs> you were, you were a little baby. My turn on that one. Yes, yes. That's why I love baby. He reminds me of my my younger self writing, and honestly, like yeah. that's that's what I love about reading my old pieces. Some some writers don't like their old pieces. But I like all of my old pieces because they always remind me of where I was. Like I can just mm. tell, like, oh, you were hungry. Like you were, you were talking about immortality. Like, what's wrong with you, bro? Like you're 25. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's where I was. Like I, I I wanted it. I wanted it more than anything else. And even now, like being in the gym, you you slow down. Not because it's not that you don't think about immortality. You just try not to think about dying. Like, with COVID-19, it's not really something you want to spend too much time on. Like, you don't want to think about the time when you're not here. But you do kind of hope that these words mean something. That's my thing now. It's like, are they meaningful? Try and give people meaningful words. Like, I don't have to lunge them at you. Like, I feel like I've done that enough. It's like, it, at some point in time, you got to stop throwing things at people. They're going to be like, I got it, yo. Like, I got it, all right? So, like, you gift it to them. You try to wrap it up in a bow. You try to make it real nice. You make every piece a present. And if they want to take it and keep it, beautiful. If they want to hang it up in their house, amazing. If they want to pass it on to somebody, great. If they want to leave it where it was, that is fine. You have that option. I'm just trying to be a little bit more graceful with my uh, expectations of audience. Like, this is a gift to you for me. If you want it, I would be happy to have you take it. So would you say that you're less concerned about the idea of paper cuts versus stab wounds or even that determining if it's a paper cut or a stab wound is in sort of the perception of the person who reads the piece? I'm still trying to stab you for sure. Like I don't want to be no paper cut. That's still that's still very real. Like I'm trying to make sure that if you do open this gift, that it's going to have some type of meaning in your life. Now, how big that stab wound is, that depends on the reader. Because, like, it's, man, it's weird, right? Like, you know when something hits you. And that's what I love about words is because it's not like a car accident where your airbag explodes and it's just busting your face. Like, it's almost like... Your heart drops, you know? It's just like, oh, shit. You know, like, I'm always working toward that oh, shit moment, you know? Because, like, I want you to almost be surprised I wrote that. Like, someone thought that? Like, someone's thinking these things and they're able to articulate them in a way that affected me. Like, if I don't affect you, then I'm probably not doing my job. So... The the idea of, like, immortality through your writing, I think, really speaks to me. Because, like, I've wanted to be a writer since, literally literally since I was five years old. It's all I ever told my parents that I was going to be a writer. 
Yes, hi. So my love for writing is what made you know is what makes me want my writing to have an impact. It's what makes me want my writing to last. But you said that you didn't always start out wanting to be a writer. So was this feeling of wanting, you know, some kind of immortality, something substantial that you've done to last? Did do you think that did you have that feeling before you were a writer or has that feeling sort of developed as, you know, what you want the end result of your writing to be? It was it's a bit about being the best. Again, and I didn't want to be the best to be better than everyone else. I just wanted to be the best to make the most money. Because I just figured that that was the only way to scale it, right? Like, well, when someone asked me how much I made, I wanted to say a number. And they're like, wow, you make that much? It was like, yeah, I'm the best. Like, I wanted to be able to justify paying me the most. And I figured all the best writers were immortal. So if I'm going to be the best, I might as well never die. I might as well write something that's going to live forever. That's the only way I'm going to justify getting this check. So that was my whole thing. It was like, justify your check. Well, as a writer, if we're still talking about Shakespeare, if I'm still reading Bukowski, and again, that's, that's coming from reading dead writers. If I'm reading Fitzgerald, he did something right. He landed somewhere in the spectrum of words that was going to outlive him. So there's no way I'm going to be the best. And if I die, these words die too. Like, no, I'm not going to be able to justify that check. So I have to live forever. It was the only thing that made sense. And I still kind of feel that way in the sense of like, I still want to justify this check. Like I really want to. Like I really want to get to a point where I'm getting paid because I have reached a, a level of writing that has a, a intrinsic value. Like this is the price for a yo piece. And it's not like, I don't know, I try to stay away from like capitalistic goals. But I just feel like as writers, man, like we have to strive for greatness. And the only way we can, like, what do we use to acknowledge our greatness? Like with rappers, they buy chains and diamonds. They get million dollar deals. They get like all these things that acknowledge how great they are or acknowledge their success. But like, how do we acknowledge our success? How do we acknowledge that we did great with this writing? Because writing is extremely difficult. I think being a writer is as hard as being a songwriter. As hard as being a lyricist, but like, how do we get a chance to tally our level of improvement, our level of dedication? And I was just like, well, it has to be money. Maybe I have to find something else to fulfill that. But as long as the goal is to try to find the, the, the biggest check for these words, well, they have to live forever. This episode of Inside the Source featured Mickey Elliback, Ryan Gore, and Brandon Hill of the Same Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, with the Fifth Podcast Network. Music for the show is Fox Top by Basti. Thanks to Joel Breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Podcast Network production. Thanks to Basti, Joel Breakers, Central Source, the Fifth Element can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for part two. And we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.